This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. Welcome to Safe Space Radio for Courageous Conversations. Today is the third in our series on child abuse. Our first two interviews focused on the long-term impact of child abuse. The first looked at obesity and how obesity is often a marker for childhood suffering. We looked at how obesity makes people feel safer because they are bigger and may not get unwanted sexual advances. The second interview was also with Dr. Vincent Felitti and looked at the long-term impact of child abuse on adult physical and mental health. We explored the ACE study, that's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which demonstrates the enormous power that painful childhood experiences have on heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, as well as depression and psychosis. Today I'll be talking with Bree Maselli, who was emotionally abused as a child, growing up in a home with domestic violence. She describes many opportunities where she and her family might have been helped and that were missed. She now works to protect other kids and families from the long-term effects of trauma. Bree Maselli is the Director of Training and Quality Improvement for Thrive, which is a Maine-based nonprofit that helps agencies offer services informed by an understanding of how trauma affects people's lives. Bree Maselli used to be youth coordinator for Thrive, using her own experience as well as her training to help connect with traumatized youth and families as a powerful advocate. Ms. Maselli is trained in criminal justice and psychology as well as children's mental health. Welcome to Safe Space, Bree. Thank you. Let's start by having you tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up, your family, just so we get a sense of who you are before we go into the painful stuff. All right. So I grew up in central Maine. Um, I grew up in a blended family. My parents were divorced when I was five and I had a older sister um, and my mom remarried and got into a relationship shortly after that. So I had an older um, stepbrother as well. And um, it at first started off as kind of a a happy little family (laughs) um, and then kind of took some turns for the worst. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And I know that telling painful stories can sometimes trigger a lot of feelings. So I invite you to tell it in whatever way feels the most kind of honoring of your experience to just give us a sense of what happened. My parents got divorced and my it was a very kind of tough divorce um, between my parents. My dad left and we had never seen him again. And then my mom instantly was in a new relationship my grandparents and other family friends realized that it probably wasn't a healthy relationship from the start for my mom to get into. Um, I just remember there was a lot of kind of changes that suddenly would just happen. We would pack up and we would move um, from one location to another. I remember going um, ice skating one day um, with my older sister and it got too cold and our feet were <laughs> little icicles and we decided to walk back home and when we walked back home the whole house was empty. And so we didn't know, like, did they leave us? Did they forget us? Are they coming back to get us? Um, And so that was probably my first recollection of this relationship probably isn't um, as healthy as it should be. Um, My parents, they did come back um, (laughs) to get us. They wanted it to be a surprise that we were moving into a new house. And we moved from school to school, from house to house. So it was very challenging for me um, to make friends, make lasting kind of connections. Um, It wasn't always scary, but it definitely had its ups and downs. Um, My stepfather had 
um, un- untreated mental health. So when he was having an episode of a manic high or a manic low, like the atmosphere in the home was very different. Um, and so we just learned to kind of adapt ourselves to understanding like what was approved, what would trigger him, what wouldn't trigger him. And we just kind of, my sister and I, and kind of stayed in order. Um, that way we wouldn't have any additional repercussions when we were home or my mom wouldn't have any repercussions. So, um, so when you say we stayed in order, what, what does that mean? I guess we looked at it as we did what we were told. The house, like, always needed to be clean. We needed to have our chores done. Like, my sister and I would have a long list of things that we had to do. And so we knew that if our chores weren't done, the household would get a little crazy. Um, We knew that we had to be in by a certain time. And we didn't ask for friends to come over much because we knew that the answer was always no. Um, and I feel that my sister and I were in our little bubble. And when you say bubble, like, do you mean like you kind of tried to protect each other? What do you mean? Absolutely. And when we were out of school, it was like just the two of us. Like we'd ride bikes together. We would hang out together. Like it was really just the two of us because during those early years, um, between kindergarten and third grade was really when we moved a lot where our relationships with our grandparents were really kind of severed. Um, and it wasn't until we moved into a new home and started at a new school that we were kind of we felt like we were actually going to stay put for a little while because my mom actually purchased a home so and did she stay with him that she did my mom stayed with him for gosh about 10 years my mom stayed when I was 13 is when my my mom finally decided to leave and when my mom decided to leave um she was pregnant for my younger sister and um she finally decided that was kind of her her reason to get out of the relationship it wasn't easy it was challenging we had stayed in shelters before um when there had been some horrific episodes and after she left him it was still a very challenging um he continued to you know kind of stalk us he continued to try to stay involved he um you know they went through and filed for divorce when my sister was born he tried to kidnap her um from her head start program like there was still a lot of animosity um all through my high school years um and that's when for me I really didn't quite know how to cope my older sister who was always with me um actually left the home My mom and her got into a huge fight and she moved out and I wasn't allowed to kind of be close to her anymore and hang out with her. I can imagine that for you, it sounds like your relationship with your sister had meant the world to you. And that I imagine for you as a teenager, you may have been thinking it's all my mother's fault that I lost her. I think that when you're young and your family is involved in a domestic violence situation, I think that there's a lot of blame and I hate to say that children blame the, the parent and, and not always the abusive parent, but I think that as a young person, I couldn't make sense of my world. I didn't quite understand why were we staying when we knew it wasn't healthy? Why would we go and spend time in shelters and see my mom in the hospital with broken bones and why would she take him back? I didn't understand that. And I was never involved in family therapy or 
ever had an opportunity to talk to anyone about spending nights in the shelter or what was going on at home. Um, I had my sister, and I, I don't think I quite understood. So I think I might have been angry towards my mom, and and I just didn't have a way to understand that anger that was healthy. So it came out as hatred. It came out as frustration. It came out as you you didn't protect me. Um, and so when my sister left, that was really, really tough. I know that you work in the field of family trauma. Yes. So I, I can hear the sort of <clears throat> almost the apology in your voice. Like, <laughs> you know, I know now that she was, of course, victimized. And, you know, I, I, hear, you, I hear you understanding the many powerful reasons why women don't leave abusive partners. Absolutely. I think that there's, you know, very vivid memories that I have of, you know, my mom kind of stepping in and taking the brunt of it. Um, in order to protect you. In order to protect my sister and I. So, you know, she really took a, the brunt of a lot of things. And you know, Is there a story that comes to mind when you say that? I remember when I was in third grade and I didn't do the dishes. And that month the dishes were my chore. And I don't remember why. I'm assuming it was homework or something. But my mom kind of gave me a pass for not doing dishes. And I was up in the morning, and I was getting ready for school. My stepfather, normally, he never worked. Um, so he slept in much later. And this morning that I was getting ready, he woke up early. And he was very, very upset that I did not do the dishes. And so my mom, you know, was like, I gave her permission. I gave her permission. It wasn't, it wasn't her fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. I told her that I would do them, and I didn't, and he was very, very angry, and I just remember him standing, pouring a glass of orange juice and, like, picking it up and, like, slamming it down, and I just remember him flipping out on my mom, and I, I just remember my mom yelling, run, 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 and so I just grabbed my backpack, and I ran, and I ran to school, and I remember getting to school, and I remember huffing and puffing and feeling like I was having a heart attack, and all I kept asking my teacher was, I want to call home, I want to call home. And my teacher's like, why are you having a hard time breathing? And I said, I ran to school. I didn't say something was going on at home. I just said I ran to school. And so the school nurse, like, calmed me down a little bit. And I kept saying, I want to talk to my mom. And they're like, oh, you, you know, you should go to class. And no one would really let me call my mom. And so that whole day I kind of sat with that, um, like, what happened? Like, what happened after that? Like, I remember my mom, she was at the phone, so I kept thinking she must have called 911. Um, and then I was, after that, I was just kind of like, oh gosh, what are we going to walk, go home to? And my sister didn't know, like, what had happened. And I just remember that, just thinking that that would have been a perfect point for someone in the school to be like, what's going on? And I continued running to school, and no one ever really asked. I was became known as a very fast runner. You know, for all the sports teams, but I don't think anyone ever asked, like, you live less than a mile, why do you sprint to school? And I kind of think that that would have been a perfect opportunity for so, someone. Right, so such a missed... Such a missed opportunity. Right, and so what you do now is you're looking for every Everything. opportunity where someone could notice. So here you are, all day long, worried, worried at some level that it was your fault, because you didn't yeah, do the dishes. absolutely. So you're terrified, not only that she's hurt, but that it's your fault. Do you remember? How was she that day? Gosh, I feel like sometimes some of those memories are like Swiss cheese. You end up remembering parts of it and not all of it. 
um, I think she was fine. I think when I got home, it was as if nothing ever happened. I think my stepfather was gone, um, but she was home, and we just kind of, I never asked. So it sounds like there were other times where she literally had bones broken and was hospitalized due to her injuries. Yep. So here you are. You're growing up with a stepfather who is physically abusive to your mother. Was he ever physically abusive to you? No. I don't think he was to the point. I think that he would definitely get very angry. He was very, very stern. Um, I don't ever remember him hitting me. Um, so he was very, like, his words would sting. And he, he would point. And pointing for me now is definitely, I hate pointing. <laughs> he would point and he would, he would, he would poke. So as he was yelling at you, he would point his finger in your face and he would poke us in the shoulder. And he would just poke us as he was talking to us. But he never, never actually... I don't remember him ever actually hitting us. So we we started out by saying that you had suffered emotional abuse. And in your mind, what does emotional abuse mean? Like, how do you define what that is? So for me, I just look at it as um, when you are continuously hearing hateful things, internalizing that and and that minimizing your confidence. and, And you think that what people are saying is true. And, you know, and sometimes it was, it wasn't always negative, but when you're constantly hearing like you're going to amount to nothing, that you're stupid. So I hear you talking about emotional abuse, not only as the things that were done to you, but the way that you internalized it. Absolutely. And of course, children pretty much always internalize the way that they're treated and the way that they're spoken to. You mentioned that your mother really got clear that she needed to leave your stepfather when she was pregnant. And I'd love to ask you, did things get better then? Did the emotional abuse end in your family after that relationship was over? What was it like after that for you? Um, I was hospitalized um, my sophomore year of high school. The steps that got me into the hospital was that I didn't. I ran away, and I went and stayed with my sister. And I had a long week with my sister and my mom kept calling and my sister kept covering saying she's not here she's not here my friends all knew where I was but they kept covering for me as well and finally by the time I realized my mom was really pissed um, and that I needed to go home my sister called and said Bree just showed up on the doorstep I'll keep her here till you can come get her and I had spent the whole time with my sister. And so when my mom got up, she just drove in circles, yelling at me and yelling at me and yelling at me. And because I wouldn't give her the answers to her questions, she just drove me straight to the hospital and said, obviously, you have problems. And went in and told them that I was suicidal, um, which had never really crossed my mind in a formal way to actually make a plan. Um But yeah, sometimes I thought like maybe it would be better if I wasn't a burden to my mom or if I wasn't, you know, and, but I never really thought about it in like what I would do. But when I was at the hospital, they questioned my mom and then they asked me all kinds of questions and I felt like I was somewhat coerced into, um, saying that I tried to kill myself and I never did. I remember that day and I remember her giving me a hug the day they sent me in. And she made a comment to me saying, this is either the best thing I've ever done 
for you or the worst. She gave me a hug and she left. And so I think that that kind of sits with right, me. You're there like going, oh my God, what's about to happen? <laughs> and um, I think that that just kind of sits. And then I, I realized that her and I, you know, looking back and, and her and I just had a conversation about this nine months ago saying that like we never even talked about it. You never asked what my day looked like in the hospital. You you never questioned. Like, I received my treatment plan and my discharge plan on a post-it from the doctors. And it basically said that I had to walk to my therapy sessions. School was going to release me for an hour and a half a day. And I had to walk down the street to go to therapy. But there was never any parent component to that therapy. I, was, I didn't have a car at the time. And medication management was was never my prescription would be empty and I I might go days without it before my mom would get me another one if she did at all and so I guess that me making sense of that is that you put me in the hospital to get me help but yet you weren't there to, to follow through with the help that I just ended up depending on myself and, and so I think that there's something there that my mom and I to this day have yet to process and make sense of because I know from her perspective, she probably has a different Im- impression of everything. And I know that though I didn't see her trying, I know that she did try because she kept all of the records and she gave them to me when I moved home. And she's like, if you're going to do the type of advocacy work that you do, you might want to read this. And she handed me all of my medical records. And so I sat there kind of going through it and looking at like my hospital stay and all of the notes that the doctors had put together. She had every progress note. She had everything. And in the margins, you could tell that she was trying really hard to find resources. I didn't see any of that, but I know she was trying. And so looking at at it, it's like I was young and I might have... I I only saw what I could see through my tunnel vision as, you know, an adolescent bratty 16-year-old and not really see it through the challenges she was facing as a single mom trying to overcome her own stuff, trying to parent an infant and deal with me all at the same time. So, but we haven't had an opportunity to really sit and talk about that. Such a poignant story, Brie, because it it can get, like from your perspective, the fact that there was no follow-up and no talking about it no acknowledgement nothing so you felt really so abandoned oh absolutely yes so there you are feeling abandoned by your mom and feeling like she totally wasn't there for you and then you get these notes and you see that she poured over them and was like incredibly invested and was trying to do the right thing yeah and i and i think that looking at those notes it really showed me a lot about our system The notes were really through the lens of my mother and what my mother's impression of the situation was Um, looking back and, and everything that got me to be in the hospital was really not accurate. The challenges that my mom had identified um, were not really challenges that I thought were really a big deal. Like what do you mean? Um, She mentioned in there that I had been abandoned by my father And then I had just recently um, had my great-grandfather pass away. And in in the records, it stated that he was a very strong male role model. So that I must be having issues with abandonment of men. And so kind of looking at that, I was like, I had a relationship with my my great-grandfather. 
but not a strong relationship that his his death would have impacted me in such a way that all of a sudden all these behaviors would happen those behaviors were there before i see so from your perspective here you are living in an abusive home where you were scared for your mother's life and you'd lost the connection with your sister so those are the real things for yes. you when I, when I hear you saying, when you said, you know, it, looking over the notes, it taught me what was broken with our system. Mm-hmm. Part of the sense I'm getting from you is that they were right in that you were in a very bad way. Like you were in a desperate situation. Yep. Your life really was unbearable the way it was going. And you were, your running away spoke to that. Absolutely. But the way the system, you know, the way your mother painted the story or the questions you were asked, it shaped what the problem was as in a really distorted way. Absolutely. From what was actually the heart of the problem. Mm-hmm. And was your mother trying to cover at that point for the fact that she was in an abusive relationship? I mean, was she was she very ashamed about that? I don't know. I don't... I, w- I wouldn't know the answer to that. I think that would be up to my mom. I think my mom was very distrusting of the system to begin with. Um, I don't know if if she didn't want to be seen as a bad parent. And so saying that, you know, the loss of my great-grandfather was a trigger, um, I don't know. Well, she may have, I mean, she may well have imagined that it was. Absolutely. My guess is it sounds to me like she was actually trying her best. Absolutely. In a very sincere way, Mm -hmm. even though it missed you. I missed it completely. Yes. Completely. So I want to switch gears now, Brie, to your work because you... You have such an insider view, <laughs> clearly, of ways in which the system misses the real the real problem. Absolutely. And, um, how did you decide to go into the kind of advocacy, you know, trauma based systems work that you do? What, what how, do you remember when you made that decision? What inspired it? Yeah, um, I went to school for criminal justice and psychology because um, police officers are always coming to the house, and I thought that. Maybe I wanted to help other families that were in my similar situation. So I went into criminal justice. Um, I worked for a police department for a period of time. And I worked on their domestic violence advocacy um, unit. And I did a lot of um, rape crisis volunteer work um, after I was in college. And I had kind of a moment where... I thought to myself, like, wow, I really want to help, but I can't really be the first responder responding in the midst of a crisis because it was triggering too much of the things that I hadn't dealt with. So I enjoyed working with children. And so I had a part-time job working for kids that were involved in child welfare um, or had some sort of open case with the department. So they had some challenges. And so these were pretty tough kids um, from inner city Providence. Um, and I started working and starting to listen to them, check, you know, kind of hear their point of view and realizing that, like, that's not always heard. And so I worked um, in kind of a after school mental health kind of program position as a director for a couple of years. I moved back to Maine and I found a job that was children oriented, taking the voice of young people and consumers who are in the mental health system and translating that into partnership with professionals and creating opportunities for change. I was like, oh my gosh, for the first time in my life, the the challenges I faced and the things that I saw were kind of like things I didn't want to talk about were my greatest professional asset. 
And I remember my boss um, screening me over the phone for the interview. And she's like, wow, your resume is perfect. She's like, we're really looking for someone with your skill set. She's like, but we really need someone that's dealt with some adversity in their life. (laughs) And I was kind of like, well, I've gone to college, worked really hard for my grades, but no one's ever told me to mention my adversity on my resume. (laughs) And so her and I had this really kind of informal conversation. And I shared a, a portion of my life story with her. And she's like, you qualify. Perfect. And when I started that job, I started sitting with other young people. And I remember sitting with one young man and he was sharing his story with me um, about his hospital stay. And it was the same hospital I had stayed at, but it was 10 years later. And his story was very, very similar to mine. And I thought to myself, our system has not changed. And that was kind of my like, this is why I'm in this work. Like, I took those those records that my mom had given me and I said, I'm not afraid to share these records. I'm not afraid to tell. I was working for the agency that I once received services from, even though it wasn't services for very long. I was now on their payroll and part of my job was to sit with state um, representatives of behavioral health and to sit with clinicians and to educate them on how to balance the family perspective and the youth perspective to how to re- how to really listen to young people so that they can get the most out of their treatment and that we can have responsive systems to help them so that they didn't end up in residential settings in hospitals out of state placements that they ended up healing early so that they can be productive young adults and so if someone had done that for you Bree if if when you were hospitalized, if someone had really listened to you, oh my God, what is it that you wish that they would have heard? That I was lonely. I think that that was like the biggest thing that I was like this little lonely person that didn't understand who she was. Because I felt that I had to fit a mold. Like it was like this, it's kind of that like self-discovery phase that I feel like I missed. I felt that I was either trying to put on a front to fit in, that I put on a front so that there wouldn't be conflict in the home, that I put on a front to be liked, that I had this bad girl like strong kind of attitude but it was really just building walls after walls after walls but behind all those walls I was just really lonely I think about what you were saying before about you know with your stepfather like my sister and I had to be in order like it sounds like you were trying so hard to be so good yeah for so long and it and it I cracked I, I almost see you as like a translator for the the things that kids can't put into words so that adults and clinicians and systems of care can begin to hear what it is that kids are trying desperately to communicate by doing things like running away or getting into trouble with the law absolutely and so you're it's like you're trained in some kind of like wounded child language yeah. <laughs> to grown-ups so that people can actually understand each other. Absolutely. A lot of the work that I've done um, early on in um, our program was to really kind of, we were asking these really heavy questions of young people for research purposes or clinical purposes. And when I actually took the questions and I gave them to the youth, 
they were like, what does that mean? And so I started asking them questions about what does success look like to you? And I just brought it down to a different level. And young people were telling me success means I can go back to school tomorrow. I wasn't kicked out or I didn't have a bad day. My boss asks me to come back to work. Success looks like I can sleep at night. Like, to, like we are we are thinking so big picture. And these young people are thinking like hour to hour, day to day. And so when we started redefining what success looks like for a young person, we start, I started realizing that our systems are setting very high standards on young people, and, and it's harder for them to achieve that standard. Um, so I, I did. I started translating so that it made sense. Brie Maselli, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thank you. I want to thank today Jen Hudson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, Jim Russell for working as my consultant, and Gabe Graben, who is the new producer of Safe Space Radio. Welcome to Safe Space, Gabe. If you did not get to hear all of this interview and you'd like to, or if you'd like to send the link to a friend, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can email subscribe there to get a weekly email with a link to that show. You can also email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com with any request for future topics or subjects. Coming up next week is an interview with Carl Russell about childhood sexual abuse at the hand of a priest. And coming up next now is Speak Freely. <laughs>